I was about to read, it was basically like read the intro, and I was like, well, where did they come from? And he was like, lots of different biblical scholars. <laughs> so. You mean where did the intros come from? No, where, where did the where Psalms, the come, Psalms from? come from? You mean why do they think that they all go together? Or that, does yeah. he mean the penitential Psalms or all the Psalms? You don't know. What book I, is that? This is, it's just, an, it's a, just a compilation of Psalms. Yeah, but what's the whole, I mean, it's, there's more than Psalms in that book, right? Yes. So, so what book is that? Oh, this is all of them. This is the Bible. The Bible. The, the, the Bible. Top Biblion. Yeah, <laughs> the Bible, as they say. <laughs> because they want it to sound Greek. It is. A lot of people don't know. A lot of people think T-E-H is just a misprint, is just a typo, you know, like, oh, my God. But um, no, it's because it's people used to know Greek. I was actually just reading. So, but you haven't looked at it yet. No. But I, you will. Get extra credit. No, yes, I, will, I will look at it. Yes, you will get extra credit. In my heart, I will credit you. My Good heart enough. will be full of credit to you. All right, fine. Um, so I was just speaking speaking of Tug Greek. Um, you know, you don't say the hoi polloi. Do people know that? Have you ever heard the term hoi polloi? means the common people, like... Um, yeah, 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 you're doing a lot of stuff for the 1%, but what about hoi polloi? Um, you'll hear it. I think what's going to happen now is it's going to be one of those things that in the next week you're going to come across it somewhere and you're going to huh. say, it whoa. Happens, yeah. I know, it always happens. Um, so hoi polloi is Greek for the people. Um, it's plural, um, as in, um, so hoi is the plural, and polloi is people plural. So it just means the general run of people. But occasionally you will see people say, you will see hoi polloi, when they use the term, say the hoi polloi, which is just wrong, because it's saying the, the people. Um, it's like we, the, the people. Um, but I was just reading about this guy named James um, Jesus Angleton, who was the head of counterintelligence for the CIA for um, like 30 years and um, was um, an English major at Yale and basically learned or thought he learned to read um, the signs of, of um, spies and moles within the CIA by doing <laughs> incredibly close analysis of um, just the tiniest hints, the way we do. Um, and he was actually um, brought the great 20th century literary critic, English literary critic William Empson to Yale when he, Angleton, was an undergrad. But anyhow, I was reading about his undergraduate days um, in this biography of him and was amazed to see that he actually had trouble graduating because he didn't do really well. He didn't do well enough in third year Greek, which was part of the requirement for the English major in 1939. So, um, <laughs> so, so I think... I think we're going to require three years of Greek. <laughs> You're laughing. Third year Greek, I think, was Greek composition. That is, he had to write in Greek, and they just felt that the writing he was doing in ancient Greek wasn't up to snuff. Um, I was just going to say, hoi polloi, is that, that's ancient Greek. That's ancient yeah, Greek, yeah. I studied in modern Greek. So how would you say the people in modern Greek? I honestly forget. I took seven years of Greek school. I attended seven years <laughs> Wait, so how did that happen? I'm Greek. You're Greek? 100%, yeah. But where were you born? 
um, America. Yeah, but you, were, but so you, were, so you were learning Greek and then you forgot it all. Yeah. Do your parents speak Greek? No, my grandmother does. I lived with my grandmother, so she spoke it all the time. And then she kind of stopped. Now she just spoke really. She speaks really broken English, so. And she won't speak Greek at all. She does. Well, she will, but but she you does. you just will look at her in, incomprehendingly. Nah, that's all I say. It means yes. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't. Um. The do you know what the word metaphor means in modern Greek? No. See here we we've been talking about metaphors. Does it mean? Yeah, go. Uh, like as I say. Does it mean like a different form of I don't know. I really don't know. No, it doesn't. It means bus. Bus? Yeah, because it carries you around. So um, okay. that so if you go to Athens, you'll see buses which say um, metaphoroi on them. Um, and that basically means um, transport. Um, huh. It actually almost literally means transport. Um, it doesn't mean the buses are all metaphors. Um, well, you know, in, in a funny kind of way, uh, it's as though a metaphor is a metaphor for transport. Um, and it's a metaphorical transport. Um, no, it really is. You laugh. You laugh because you know it's true. It's funny because it's true. Actually, that's not why it's funny, but it is true. Um, when I was in Athens, I saw a sign at a, on a store that said, Rapso Machines. And um, so Machines was easy. It means machines. But um, it took me a second to remember that the word rhapsode um, which is what a poet is, is actually an ancient word for weaving, um, because what poets do, it's, where, it's how text and textile have the same root. Poets weave lines and words together. Um, so the idea of a text is that it's a weaving made of language, just as a textile is um, a weaving made of thread. Um, in fact, the word text comes from an older root, um, which means a weaving together, whence in German you get um, docks, and hence dachshund, hmm. because what a dachshund is is a beaver dog, ah. a dog that hunts beavers, and beavers are called docks because they weave branches together to make their, um, to, to make their um, dams. Um, so anyhow, it's, so this sign said Rapso Machines, and I realized, oh, so that must be weaving or sewing. So it's sewing machines, a sewing machine shop. Not poet machines. <laughs> Not poet machines, no. Um, that would be Hamlet while this machine is to him, as he puts it. All right, so we're um, getting near done with done. Um, and you'll like the other stuff, too. Um, are you dubious, Rachel? No. Um... Okay, so uh, let's finish um, Satire 3, and um, then we'll look, um, get back to where we started, which is um, to the Holy Sonnets. Um, but, uh, where did it go? Satire, oh, there we go. Um, so if you have... Um, the Oxford, um, we are now on page 30. Um, and this is, as I say, the, the crucial part of Satire 3. Um, so let's just pick up at, say, line 73. Um, though truth and falsehood, I guess that's line 72, 
Um, Though truth and falsehood be near twins, yet truth, a little elder, is. Be busy to seek her. Believe me this. He's not of none nor worst that seeks the best. Um, So if you're at least seeking truth, even though truth is very hard to find, if you're at least seeking truth, you are doing something. You're not the worst. You're not what you're doing with your life isn't meaningless. Even if you don't have truth but are seeking it, what you're doing with your life isn't meaningless. And there's a little Dunnian joke in believe me this. That is, um, what I'm doing is telling you the truth. Um, You should believe what I'm saying here. Um, But again, I think it's an interesting comment on Dunn's poetry to say the truth and falsehood are near twins. That is to say that it's very easy to slide, to slip. Um, You don't have to go far to get from truth to falsehood. Maybe you don't have to go far to get from falsehood to truth. Um, That is, again, the the sort of um, surprising detours or deviations that Dunn's images are always making. Um, Those slight deviations are maybe as slight as the difference between truth and falsehood. Um, So, to adore or scorn an image or protest may all be bad. Um, So, adoring an image, why is that bad? Yes, idolatry. Um, That is, the worship of images is idolatry. Do you know how this is working out during the Reformation? Yeah. Abby, was your hand up? No. Okay. Don't Protestants, don't they not not use images or statues? No, 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 say. I just know that that in regards to... What they what they worship, it's not the same as Catholics. Like they don't use pictures or statues. I forget which one is. Yeah, yeah. Um, Rachel, what were you going to say? Um, at the time, a branch of the church had a beef with iconoclasm, and so there was this big movement to like rid certain sects within Christianity of all images, and mm-hmm. there was a real like extreme pull towards it at the time. Yeah. So, what happens? What one of the great debates at the time in in what's called the Reformation and then in the Counter-Reformation is the question um, what you do with icons or images. Um, So, you know, there's an icon museum. um, I've actually never been, but it's supposed to be really good, just outside of Boston, which is a museum of Russian icons. Um, And icons are religious images which are held in veneration. Um, People, if you go to Catholic churches or to Orthodox churches, people will get on their knees before images of the Virgin or of Jesus on the cross um, and pray um, as though the image itself somehow participated in the divine. Um, The Protestant view, the radical Protestant view, the protesting view, and that's the word protest that um, appears in the next line, to adore, score an image, or protest, that is to be a protestant, a protestant, a Protestant, um, is essentially saying that what the church, what the Catholic church did was to, to quote John Milton, um, it was to offer images as the 
new vomited paganism of sensual idolatry. Um, that's a quote, that's not me. Uh, the new vomited paganism of sensual idolatry. Um, so the idea was that you would look at these images that the church was offering and you would pray and you would leave money for the church. Um, you would contribute to the church for these images. And um, so what the most radical Protestant um, groups did, the most radical Protestant um, um, movements did, was to engage in what's called iconoclasm. And the reason there's so many beautiful ruins in England, why it's a country just full of ruined monasteries and ruined abbeys and so on, is that Henry VIII, under the excuse of iconoclasm, because he made England, um, started making England a Protestant country, although he didn't call it Protestantism, but he started making it um, a Protestant country. He said, all these churches with all their images, um, which people are worshiping, that's all idolatry. Um, we're going to destroy that all because we don't believe in idolatry, plus a lot of them are made of gold. Um, ah. And um, so the gold will be nice. Um, and so basically he... Um, um, just looted the churches, destroyed them all. When Shakespeare talks about bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang in Sonnet 73, right, that time of year that mayest in me behold. Um, ring a bell? Yeah. Yeah, okay, it should for you. Um, we did it in English 11. That time, of, you should, this is, this is one, of, one of those sonnets, um, one of like the five sonnets everyone should know. That time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs that shake against the cold, bare, ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang, says Shakespeare to the young man. He says, you can see in me the time of year that's autumn, that time of year because he's old. That time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs that shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. And um, the bare ruined choirs were things that you could see all over England, um, places that had been sacred to um, Catholic worship and Catholic rite that Henry VIII and his followers had pillaged and looted and destroyed. Um, so the excuse for Henry was iconoclasm. For a lot of Protestant um, leaders, that wasn't an excuse. That was a passionately held conviction that what mattered was the word of God and not um, any images purporting to be holy. Images couldn't be holy. All that could be holy were what God said. And what that meant was no particular text was holy. That is, you wouldn't hold up a Bible and say, look, this is a holy book. I dare not look into it because it's so holy. Um, it's what was in the book, the words and not the, not the ink, um, the meaning and not the paper. And um, so that claim was um, a strongly anti-Catholic claim because it essentially said the meaning that exists in your mind when you read, that's where the Holy Spirit builds his temple in the mind and in the heart. Um, the counter-reformation, is that what also you were thinking of, Rachel? Uh, not particularly. 
Okay, well, so the Catholic Church actually had to deal with this in what's called the Counter-Reformation, where they tried to win people back um, by acknowledging some of the force of the sense that what mattered was what happened inside you, within you. Um, and their idea was you could have images that weren't to be venerated, but that would show you, just as texts can show you, what it was that Jesus went through, what it was that his mother went through. Um, so in Counter-Reformation was really important to the development of painting, because no one worships a painting, or very few people do. You don't go um, and look at a painting of the um, virgin and child and think that's a holy object. It's a painting of the virgin. It's not somehow the presence of the, vir of the virgin within an object that is itself holy. Um, and one of the arguments that Milton himself was against, but one of the arguments that the Counter-Reformation made was that images are the layman's books. That is, that images in churches were actually like books for people who couldn't read, for people who were illiterate. Um, but the argument about images is an argument about whether um, an image which has religious force is idolatry or whether an image which has religious force can actually speak to the heart rather than simply commanding veneration by being something sacred and therefore taboo. Um, so, Dunn, who started out as Catholic and is thinking about these things, he says he doesn't know what the truth is, um, and he says, but seek the best. To adore an image or to scorn an image, like the iconoclasts, or to protest in any way to be a Protestant, no matter what branch of Protestantism, may all be bad. So adoring an image without thinking about it, scorning an image without thinking about it, protesting how the church is being run without thinking about it, they could all be bad. There could be no right thing to do. Um, images can be bad, but hatred for images can be bad. And Protestantism can, all, can be bad as well. It's like what Lincoln said about the Civil War, that both sides can't be right. Um, but perhaps neither side is right, um, he said in the second inaugural address. So both sides can be wrong. Here Dunn is saying all these things can be wrong. Adoring, scorning, protesting may all be bad. Therefore, doubt wisely. Um, that's almost an oxymoron because doubt is usually um, just something you can do without having to be wise. You all know that you can always say to someone and get their goat by no matter what they say, you can say, well, I, I, I doubt it. Um, I'm not so sure. And you don't even have to think about it. But what he's saying is doubt wisely. Be careful. In strange way to stand inquiring right is not to stray. So if here I think there's a, there's a pun here. Um, it's strange. It's a strange fact that to stand inquiring right, that's not straying. Wondering is not the same thing as straying. But also, if you're in a strange pathway, if you don't know where you are, you're not going to go wrong by trying to figure out the right way to go. 
Um, maybe once you start going, you'll go wrong. But to stand, to think, and that's what he's saying here. Stand and think. Don't just rush into some um, passionately held view, but stand and think. In strange way, to stand inquiring right is not to stray. To sleep or run wrong is. So to sleep, that is, you're not standing and inquiring. You're just saying, oh, I'm in this strange pathway. I don't know where I am. I think I'll take a nap. Well, then you are straying if you're not trying to figure out the truth. To run in the wrong direction, to say, OK, I'm going to bet it goes that way, um, that's also straying from the truth. So in strange way to stand inquiring right is not to stray, to sleep or run wrong is. And then, this is where we were last time, um, this definition of truth. On a huge hill, cragged and steep, truth stands. So cragged and steep, what better set of adjectives for Dunn's poetry? Um, I think that's how to understand the importance of, of the way he's thinking about truth here. On a huge hill, cragged and steep, truth stands, and he that will reach her about must and about must go. Um, what do you think of about must and about must? How would you put that in English? Around and around. OK, around and around. But let's, British English would, would, uh, would let you have about where we would say around in American. But what about um, what around um, the word order? Put it into around. How would you say this? How would you paraphrase this in modern English using around instead of about? Around and around must go instead of about must end. You would about say that in normal speech? Around and around must go. Not in normal speech. No, so put it in normal speech. Must go around. OK. Yeah, you could even say must go around and around. No? Yeah, yeah sure. It's just been going around and around about this line. Yeah, that makes sense. OK, so what do you think of about must and about must? Okay, yeah, you're certainly not going in one direction. What do you just I'm just asking you a question about the poetic diction here. Again, this is the thing that Dryden and um, and Coleridge didn't like about Dunn, is that his diction, and it's the thing that Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot didn't like about Milton, is that they didn't use diction that sounded like um, ordinary English. Um, Milton's famous, the, the, the thing that, that Pound hated um, or illustrated as being terrible in Milton was God saying in book three of Paradise Lost about what has to happen to Adam and Eve because they're going to sin. Um, and God says, die he or justice must. And Ezra Pound essentially just quotes that and rolls his eyes. Um, the thing is, Ezra Pound is much more impossible to understand than, than um, Milton is, but Pound just thought that was ridiculous. Die he or justice must. Um, where we would say, if he doesn't die, then justice will die, or something like that. 
Um, so what do you think of the diction here? Cragged and, on a huge hill, cragged and steep, truth stands, and he that will reach her about must and about must go. Yeah. Is he making a play on the two ways that about could be used? About is in around and then about is in pertaining to this? Okay, I think he is. That is, he has to go about it. Um, and when you go about something, you know, go about your business. Um, that's sufficiently American not to sound weird, right? Um, we wouldn't say go around your business. But if you say go about your, your business, business yeah. or if um, Cordelia says it is my father's business that I am about, um, what it means is you're going from place to place. You're going about the whole area um, in order to do what you need to do. So I think, I think, yeah, that's right. There is that there, that sense of going about something. Um, going to see a man about a dog. Um, but what? Yeah. Is it also just um, like mimicking the process of like having to work to find truth and like and getting caught in that like going through this like searching and like working for it? Yeah, you have to work for the line, and you can feel how he's working for the line. That is the fact that it's not um, an easy line to interpret or to say is part of the point. Um, that if you about must and about must go, yeah, that line is mimicking. Um, that line is describing itself. That line is mimicking the difficulty of getting to the truth. Um, you have to go about, and what do you find? You find more about. So you're going about and about and about before you even get to the predicate, must go. And what the hill stubbornness resists, when so. So, yeah, it's a hard line. It takes some cognitive effort to interpret it. And that effort is the point. That's how you get to the truth, is by doing that work. And what the hill suddenness resists, win so. Yet, strive so that before age, death's twilight, thy soul rest. For none can work in that night. So work so that you can rest when you're old because you won't be able to work when you're dead. So here he's thinking of another biblical admonition, work for the night cometh work for the night cometh. That is, the night is death, and you'd better do your work now while you still have daylight and life in order to save your soul. Work for the night cometh. Dr. Johnson, <coughs> in the 18th century, his watch had inscribed upon it in Greek. See, here we go again. Mm -hmm. um, see if you can do this one. Okay. Nux gar erketai. That is sound Greek. <laughs> Ancient Greek. Nux so different. Because I'm really, I'm, I sound like I'm miserable at it, but I'm really not that bad at No, grandma. no, I'm sure. How could you be? Uh, no, I don't sound. No, people, people can always speak their grandmother's languages. Um, nux is in Latin, nox, night. Nux gar ergetai means for the night cometh. The night is coming. Um, so Johnson had that on his watch. Every time he looked at his watch, he would say, for the night is coming. Um, so, 
none can work in that night. To will implies delay, therefore now do. Um, what is it that... Is it Yoda who says there is no... There is no do, or there is no... Do or do not, there is no try. Yes, do or do not, there is no try, right. So he got that from Don, right? Um, <laughs> to will, that is to want to do what's right, implies delay. So don't decide you're going to do it. Um, will, there is also the will of the future tense. To will implies delay. Therefore, now do hard deeds. So you should be doing hard deeds, things that are hard. The body's pains. Hard <coughs> knowledge, too. The mind's endeavors reach. So the body's pains reach hard deeds. Manage to do things that are hard physically. And the mind, by working hard, will read, reach hard knowledge. And mysteries are like the sun, dazzling, yet plain to all eyes. So the mysteries, religious mysteries, are like the sun. Everyone can see them, and yet they dazzle. They're hard to look at, and yet everyone can see them. Keep the truth which thou hast found. Men do not stand in so ill case here that God hath with his hand signed kings' blank charters to kill whom they hate, nor are they vicars but hangmen to fate. So when you find the truth, don't think that you have to obey authority. Things aren't so bad here that God has given kings um, just a blank check to do whatever they want. Um, they're not vicars. What does vicar mean? Anyone know? So a vicar. Know, I don't know the like the nuances between all the positions. Well, isn't isn't vicar? I associate. I think of like Church of England. Yeah. That's all I got. <laughs> That's all you got. Okay. <laughs> uh, where, what do you think the root of the word is? Vice. Yeah. Do you have uh, a note or? No, I just. Guess. Yeah. Yes, vice, and not vice as in um, the opposite of virtue, but vice as in what? Like viceroy. Like viceroy or vice president. What's a viceroy? Like a, a, an official, a, a high standing. Like Who stands a, for the? The leader. The like Roy. The Roy. Oh. The Roy yeah, proxy. Okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. Vice president stands for the? Yeah. <laughs> vice principal. Um, yeah. So um, what a vicar is is someone who has the authority, who stands in for and um, has the authority of the person who, ha who um, has the actual authority. So a viceroy has the king's power behind him. Um, a vice president is, um, will take over for the president or will represent the president. Um, a vicar represents God. That's why we associate vicars with priests. Our word vicarious, as in you take vicarious interest in something. Um, you see someone um, accidentally burn their hand, and you go, "Ooh!" It's as though you felt as though you felt it. You're having a vicarious experience of what's happening to them. All of that is, yeah, proxy or substitute. So what he's saying is, kings are not vicars. 
but hangman to fate, which is the lowest job you can have, is the job of hangman. Hmm. So don't think of a king as almost God. Think of a king as the person who does the really dirty work of fate's um, punishment of human beings. Fool and wretch, wilt thou let thy soul be tied to man's laws by which she shall not be tried at the last day? So what's the right answer to that? No. No. (laughs) Better not. Will it then boot thee to say a Philip or a Gregory, a Harry or a Martin taught thee this? So Philip and Gregory... Like, will it help you to say who taught you, like, what religion, will it help you to give an excuse, basically? Yeah, and will it help you to say that, who would Philip be, do you think? King Philip? King Philip of? Spain. Spain. Okay. Um, Gregory? Pope. Pope. Okay, good. Church father. Harry? There's a Prince Harry, yeah. From Shakespeare, you remember. Oh, that's mm. it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. Hal. Uh, Hal, mm-hmm. Harry. Um, is Harry a nickname? Yes. Oh, Harry's okay. nickname for Henry, and uh, and the Henrys tended to call themselves Harry in as a kind of, um, like Bill Clinton instead of William Jefferson <coughs> Clinton. Um, or Jimmy Carter. Harry is what a lot of the Henrys call themselves. Who's Jimmy James? Yeah. Yeah, James Carter. President James Carter to you. Um, <laughs> President William Clinton. Um, so, um, and Martin? Martin Luther. Luther. All right, good. So, will it help you to say you're doing this because of what authorities told you? Authorities from all over the place Philip Catholic, Gregory Catholic, Harry, Henry VIII, Protestant, Martin, um, very Protestant. Um, so here's just a range of religious authorities. And will it help you to be able to cite those authorities? Is not this excuse for me for mere contraries equally strong? Cannot both sides say so? That thou mayest rightly obey power? Her bounds know. So if you have to obey power, you should also know the bounds of power, how far power extends, and don't go farther than that. Those past, that is, if you go beyond the bounds of power, those past, her nature and name is changed. To be then humble to her is idolatry. So you should only obey the laws as far as they rightly extend. To go any further in obeying the laws or obeying doctrine or obeying rules, that becomes idolatry. As streams are, power is. Those blessed flowers that dwell at the rough stream's calm head thrive and prove well. But having left their roots and themselves given to the stream's tyrannous rage, alas, are driven through mills and rocks and woods, and at last almost consumed in going in the sea are lost. So perish souls, which more choose man's unjust power from God claimed than God himself to trust. So 
what kind of advice this is, it's not so clear, except that you should trust God rather than any authority. And what it would mean to trust God is not to get involved, you could say, in flame wars with people on religious matters. Um, not to scorn or adore or protest an image. Um, not to think that you have to choose sides among authorities who disagree with each other. Yeah. It also seems like it could be read to mean, I mean, the, the idea of the stream being forced through the mill, that not to be religious just because you are told to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not to be religious because you're told to be, but to think hard. You, you learned that there was a God from your father. Um, you have a reason for believing in God, but you don't have a reason for believing in earthly authority. Um, and what he's therefore suggesting is something like think hard. Um, there's a famous, I think I, uh, a couple of you know this, but there's a um, famous review by the great poet A.E. Hausman. Um, oh, it's Greek day, I guess. Um, he was also a classicist. Uh, he was professor, even though I think his Greek was better than his Latin, but, I mean, he was sublime at both, but um, he was professor of Latin at Oxford. Um, and he reviewed a book of... Um, I, people know who A.E. Hasman is as a poet? Um, he's really, really good. Um... um Yeah, um, I can't quote well enough to, to do it, but he's, he's quite wonderful. And there's a play by Tom Stoppard about him, actually, called The Invention of Love. Um, at any rate, he wrote a review of a, a classics book. Um, he actually has a couple of really wonderful reviews. One review begins, this book fills a much-needed gap. So think about it for a second. Yeah, that's pretty good. Huh. Yeah, no, it takes a, it takes a second. Oh, like, imagine yeah. imagine if you wrote the book, like you would read that line and say, all right, oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> this book fills a much-needed gap. Um, but he also um, reviewed another book in which, um, you know, the guy wrote this book, and Hausman basically tore it apart in his review, showed that it was totally wrong in this review. And then he ended the review by saying, um, three minutes thought would have sufficed to show the author the error of his ways. But, but thought is irksome, and three minutes, a long time. So um, that's, um, it's true, thought is hard. Um, and thinking for three minutes, that's a whole lot of thinking. And what Dunn is essentially saying is, yeah, think. And that's what you get in his poems is irksome thought. That is thought, it's hard to read Dunn. Um, it's great, but it's also hard. And what's hard about it is that um, he's always going, finding things that you hadn't, um, finding aspects of things that most people would ignore, and following up on those aspects. And that's what the metaphysical conceits in Dunn are about. There's almost nothing natural 
you could say, in the way Dunn's poetry unfolds. And it's the sheer fact that it's so um, unnatural in its unfolding, which means that he's thinking about every moment. Um, he's thinking about every next line. No next line follows naturally from the line that comes before. Um, it's impossible in a Dunn poem to predict what the next line is going to be. Um, that's really not true of most poets. And what you could say, what a lot of people will think is um, or feel is that um, predicting where a poem is going is part of the way the poem just makes it um, beautifully easy to get there. Um, feeling where a poem is going and then going there in an even more beautiful way than you were expecting. That's one um, experience of poetry. You could call it the experience of the effortless. And you could say um, that as an aesthetic category, effortlessness is a really highly valued aesthetic category. We like things that are effortless. Um, Dunn is producing the opposite aesthetic category. Um, nothing in Dunn is effortless. Everything in Dunn is hard. The exception to that, you know, go and catch a falling star, um, that does feel like an effortless line. And Dunn can write effortless lines, um, which means that he's intentionally refusing those things because he sees them as misleading. If something is effortless, then you're not thinking. And so what Dunn is really um, pushing, and I think this is a good, this is a good um, place to go back to the Holy Sonnets now, but what Dunn is really pushing is the idea that it should be hard and not easy, that what he's writing should be hard and your reading of what he's writing should be hard because that will engage your thought. And having your thought engaged that way um, is for him a high moral good. Um, because you're not just following um, your proclivities. You're not just going down the stream to the sea, just being led wherever the stream leads you through mills and, and um, rocks and other places, um, and just getting torn apart by going with that turbulent flow. Um, so the difficulty in Dunn I guess another way to put this, maybe one, one other way to put this, because this really is crucial um, to thinking about what you think um, poetry is or what poetry can be, is that often when you take an English class um, or when you read something hard, um, part of what you're feeling is um, this is really hard, but if I really work on it, um, it'll become easier. And eventually, I will be able to strip away the um, hard medium in order to see um, the beauty or the meaning or the revelation below, um, below that hard medium. So um, you know, there's, there's hard poetry, there's easy poetry, there's hard um, novels, there are easy novels. Um, hard sentences and easy sentences, but we tend to think of the hard ones that um, the hardness is, to go back to bugs and features, that it's a bug, not a feature. Um, and that it may be 
that um, in order to say what the person wants to say, they have to use really hard language. Um, it may be that Ezra Pound, for example, couldn't say what he wanted to say in easier language because it would be misleading. But if you think really hard, um, you'll be able to dissolve the difficulties. You'll be able to get past them to the thought or the meaning. But what Dunn is explicitly saying here is that hardness is actually an important aesthetic category because it forces thought. And being forced to think is the point. The, I guess a distinction would be something with, with philosophical writing. So if you think of really hard philosophical writing, you know, Kant or Hegel, let's say, um, or Heidegger, um, the general excuse for the difficulty of hard philosophical writing is that these thoughts are really, really, really subtle and it would be misleading to put them in a less subtle fashion than the philosophical um, way they're being written. Um, that is that um, what Hegel is saying, if you try to paraphrase it in a less difficult way, um, you would also lose a lot of the content of what he's saying. Um, and the problem with, or the difficulty of Hegel is that his thought, <coughs> that is the content, can only be communicated in a form that um, will respect the subtlety and difficulty of the content. Um, but if you work really hard at it, you'll be able to break through and make that thought your own be able to have the same thought he's having. So there's a distinction in Hegel, again, or other hard philosophers, let's say, between how hard it is to work to get to the whole truth that the philosopher is saying and what that truth itself is. Um, and the difficulty in hard philosophy, and I'm sure you've all had this experience writing hard papers, the difficulty is you have the thought, but every time you try to say it, um, you find that you have to make distinctions and you have to be careful and you have to um, avoid misinterpretations. You've all had that experience writing, right? Um, that is, you have the idea, tis here but yet obscurely, as Iago says, you have the idea. Um, but when you try to write it out, just the um, exercise of writing it out means that you have to make distinction after distinction after distinction in order to get it right. But that's not what Dunn is doing. That's not his idea of why poetry should be hard. His idea is poetry should be hard because the experience of hardness is a really important one. Because the experience of hardness itself makes you treat poetry as a cognitive rather than um, a purely um, melocentric or hedonistic experience, that reading hard poetry um, and pausing on every line and working out every line slows you down in a way that it's really important to slow down and makes you do work in a way that it's really important to work. So one aesthetic of poetry is the effortless, and you could say that that's something that you get in Herrick. I mean, this I'm partly offering this to you because it's going to be a, um, an introduction to Ben Jonson and to the Cavalier poets who did believe in the effortless, um, for whom poetry was supposed to be something as effortless as possible. Um, beautiful, but part of the beauty was the ease of 
that beauty. So remember the Herrick poem upon Julia's clothes, when as in silk my Julia goes, then then methinks one chiefly knows the liquefaction of her clothes. And no one pauses over the word liquefaction and says, oh yes, what a hard and craggy word that is. Um, what a steep and craggy word that is. It's not street, steep and craggy. It's a word that liquefies. That's what's so great about the word liquefaction is that there's Julia going in her silks and the idea of silk itself becomes a liquefaction. And the word is just self-describing in that easy and lovely way. Um, oh, how that glittering taketh me. Um, it's just wonderful and easy and beautiful. And no one has ever really accused Dunn of being beautiful. Um, whatever else he is, he's avoiding beautiful writing. Everything in Dunn feels like it's a huge pressure to speak against a huge pressure not to say it. Um, he's always bursting out. And that's what you see in the Holy Sonnets as well. Um, so if you look, for example, at um, what may be the most famous one, Batter My Heart, um, which is page 177 of this book. Someone want to read it? Sorry, which one is it? It's, it, if you have the same numbering, it's number 10. Of the Holy Song. Yeah. I'll read it if I find it. <coughs> you probably have an index in the back. I probably do. Check it out. Yeah, some of you, we went around the room and some of you got not to read because we ended up, oh well. Oh, Death Be Not Proud? No. Batter My Heart. <laughs> I remember differently. Yeah, I know. Someone else should probably, oh, here, never mind. <clears throat> Batter My Heart, three-personed God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend that I may rise and stand or throw me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like an usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but oh, to no end. Reason your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captivated and proves weak or untrue, yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie, or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. Um, okay, so not that hard, but interesting. Um, what's interesting about it? Sexual, kind of. Kind of? Oh, yeah. Very. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, so what are the sexual words? Um, <laughs> ravish. Yeah, ravish. Ravish, yeah. Enthrall. Uh-huh. Um, talking about being betrothed. Oh, no, that's too. 
No. Betrothed. I'm just thinking of words that come up in like relationships or. It's from the end where he says that I am betrothed to your enemy. Uh huh. Okay. Other sexual words? I think you're missing the most obvious one. Chased. So, <coughs> I'm, I'll, I'm not chased unless you ravish me. So, what does that mean? Unless I'm filled with the presence of God, I will seek material pleasures. Okay. Um, like so, that's desexualizing it. That's true. It is. So, like, I'm, I'm going to be, uh, I will be chased until you fill, until you fill me. So, it's... Um, no. You will be chased when you fill me? Yeah. So it's kind of like flipping the definition yeah. of the word. Yeah. Yeah. Is I wrong? No, you're right. All right. Yeah. I mean, or flipping the definition of the word or flipping the definition of the concept. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Oh, no. So the only way we can be chased is if we have a relationship with God. Yeah. If we replace woman with God or man. Yeah, what about the word ravish? Oh, we have God ravish, huh? Yeah, that, that seems like, like, that like religious <laughs> ecstasy. There. We're, you're probably taking it as a little bit more 20th century than it is. That is, if you say, ah, oh, you're so ravishing tonight. <laughs> I, have um, a, I have a note here. It might yeah. be stupid. Violate, also take away or remove spatially, also overwhelm with astonishment. With astonishment? <laughs> it was good until then. I think violate goes. Yeah. No, ravish is a synonym for rape. Yeah. Oh. I mean, it's not a. It, it it's not a, a insignificant word there. Um, so I'm only chased if you ravish me. Go back to the beginning. Batter my heart, three-personed God. Um, batter in what sense? Break it open. Break it open. Yeah, what were you saying, Tom? I said beat. Beat. Yeah. Batter, beat, break open. Um, because so far, what are you doing? Not getting in. Yeah, not getting in. You're just knocking, mm. breathing, shining, and seeking to mend. Um, kind of an interesting set of verbs. Remember how much he likes to pile on word after word after word? All those whom fire, fire, flood did, or fire shall, or throw. All those who, and then there's a list of all the different ways you can die, um, in in at the round earth's imagined corners. So here we get, knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, for um, break, blow, burn, and make me new. Um, just this this. Um, well, what would you call those strings of monosyllabic verbs? How would you describe what Dunn is doing by just accreting them that way? It's like blow, where it's like the actual actions. Yeah, it's as though he's, he's um, describing the battering. So, batter my heart, three-personed God. Um, why three-personed God? Father, Son. Yeah, the Trinity. Um, why... It seems to me really effective, and I think I don't know why, um, that he that he calls God three persons God here. Maybe it like 
could emphasize the kind of violence that he's seeking, that there's like three people beating on him. Yeah. Yeah, I was just like, like between all of them, like in, the tr- like in, in a triangle, like just going bang from one to the other. Yeah. Also, it's like the idea that like, it's like, oh, the Holy Spirit's inside you and God's like the Father, but he's like, no, I want all of it. Like, I just don't want like to accept it gradually, like a lot of, I just want like everything. Yeah. Like forcefully. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it, I think that's right. And it does feel like it's really, that it is really forceful. It's like all three of you hit me as hard as possible. So batter my heart, three-person God. Um, that's another thing is that the cru- crucial word here is batter. Um, and you probably tend to read it as batter my heart, three-person God, but then you should, should kind of go back and read it as batter my heart, three-person God. Don't do what you're doing, but batter it, because you as yet but knock. Um, so knock, like knocking on what? Wood. Yeah, okay, <laughs> knocking on wood, yeah. Knocking a, on, on a door. On a door. Um, that is, you want me to open it for you, mm. um, as though knocking at a door, but that's not going to work. You have to really knock that door down batter it um, breathe shine and seek to mend how does that go with the idea of his heart as a door well, or if does they do, it if they do any well if it's saying like if they're doing any damage to it he's asking them to break it down and he's then they're if they're doing any damage to it repairing it and shining it up and making it nice okay yeah um, so it's, I think that he's using, um, there's again a little bit of double meaning in the word knock, which is um, in a way how to see how the metaphor is extending here, which is it's as though what God is doing is knocking his heart, not, to, not like a gate, but as you're saying, like wood, to see is it hollow, how does it sound inside, the way a carpenter would um, knock on something just to see um, whether there's anything loose rattling around inside, whether uh, what kind of repairs it needs, maybe it needs another nail, um, just by listening. So you can imagine here a heart as being like um, a heart-shaped object, like a box, like a, like a, um, um, a receptacle for faith or love or whatever, and it's a little bit iffy, so God is knocking at it. Okay, this part sounds like maybe it's a little bit unsound. Maybe if I breathe on it and shine it and just fix it a little bit, his heart will be okay. And um, he's saying, no, not at all. Don't knock on my heart as though it's just something that you're trying to hear whether where it's hollow or where it needs a little bit more reinforcement. Batter it down like a door or like a gate. Batter my heart, three-person God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend. Batter it, why? That I may rise. Yeah. And in order that I may rise and stand or throw me. So, or throw me like what? Like a king, yeah. So um, it's as though I am the ruler of this castle, 
Um, I am the king of the kingdom of myself, and I need you to overthrow me, to throw me to the ground, in order that I may rise and stand. Um, rise and stand as what? Saved. Yeah, among the elect, among the saved. Any, um, this is a, a question that answers itself. Sexual imagery there? Yes or no? Rise and stand? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so that I may rise and stand or throw me. Um, as soon as you see the sexual possibilities there, they become really obvious. Um, knock me down so that I rise and stand all the more. Um, so, again, you may not feel the first time you're going through that that's obviously sexual, but as the poem becomes more and more sexual in its imagery, it's hard not to see it there, and not to see that the word heart means something erotic as well. So that I may rise and stand or throw me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. So use all your force to break me, to <laughs> um, blow on the fire that burns me, he said quickly, um, and make me new. Um, I'm pretty sure blow didn't mean then what it does now, what it can now, but I'm actually not positive. I should look it up. So use your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. Um, I, like an usurped town, to another do labor to admit you. So I'm now, and here we get back to the idea of a gate, I'm now um, like a town that's a walled town that's been usurped by a tyrant, by someone... Um, who's taken over by the enemy and I would like you to come into the town and save us like a military force um, I like an usurp a town to another do that is someone else um, now has ownership of me labor to admit you um, make that a bodily image labor to admit you what would that then be about. Yeah, labor, usually it's you labor in order um, to let someone out. Um, but here you get the same um, oxymoron, the same paradoxical reversal that you get in that I may rise and stand or throw me. Um, and that you'll get in the very last line, I am not chaste except you ravish me. So I labor to admit you. Um, to give birth in a way backwards. Um, but also in a more, um, maybe not a more obvious way, because the word labor certainly has to do with giving birth. Um, but if you sexualize this also, labor to admit you, what's the gender of that sexualization? He's a girl. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I belong to another. I've been usurped, and yet I labor to admit you. But oh, to no end. I can't do it. I'm working to try to admit you, but oh to no end. Reason your viceroy in me, so there's that word viceroy, 
um, reason is the substitute or proxy for God. God. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and again, that's a Protestant view that you can trust your own reason. Um, that reason, as again, as Milton will say, reason is also choice. That is that God gave us reason so that we could reason our way into worshiping God. So reason, your viceroy in me, reason, the authority that you gave me, um, that you put within me in order that I should worship you, reason your viceroy in me, me should <coughs> defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. Um, again, very Dunian is that repetition of me. Um, most, though not all, poets would avoid ha <coughs> having the same word appear twice in a row like that. If you do this in Word, it'll, you'll get a green squiggle underneath it. Um, if you type in Pope's whatever is is right, the two is's will, it'll probably autocorrect. It's a real pain that way. Um, whatever is, right? <laughs> right? Um, so, reason your viceroy in me, me should defend. Again, a hard line. All these lines are hard. Just to say, hard to subvocalize. Reason your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captivated or captivated and proves weak or untrue. So, reason is weak and untrue to God, yet dearly I love you. So, my reason isn't doing it for me, but I do love you, and would be loved fain. I really want you to love me back, but am betrothed unto your enemy. So who's God's enemy? The devil. The devil, yeah. So somehow I've become betrothed unto the devil who's taken over me, who's usurped the town that is my body, that is my um, being, and betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me untie or break that knot again. So divorce me from the devil. From the devil. So here God becomes a principle of divorce, where divorce is usually felt to be a sin against God. What God has joined, let no man put asunder, as St. Paul said, which is why there's no divorce in the Catholic Church. Um, it was actually John Milton who um, wrote most uh, convincingly on behalf of the possibility of divorce for Protestants. Um, what he said in his great essay, you'll just love the title, The Doctrine and Discipline of Divorce. Um, so he's giving the doctrine and the discipline of divorce. Um, what he's saying is, yes, St. Paul is right. What God has joined, let no man put asunder. But it's clear that if spouses hate each other, if it's a misery for them to be together, if each is blighting the other's life, if the husband is making the wife miserable, then it would be blasphemy to say that God has joined them. So he takes the idea that if God has joined you, you can't be divorced, and he's saying if you want to be divorced, that's pretty good proof that God hasn't joined you. Um, so it's a brilliant reversal, a brilliant argument that Milton makes. But the word divorce here, as Dunn is using it a little bit before Milton, um, is shocking. 
divorces um, has a shocking, you know, it's a shocking idea. Um, people do it. Henry VIII did it or attempted to do it. Um, but it's shocking, and now he's calling upon God to divorce him. Divorce me from Satan. Untie or break that knot again, which is my betrothal to your enemy. Take me to you. Imprison me. For I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free. So do people know what the word enthrall literally means? Again, it's like ravish. There's a 20th century meaning, which is, ah, oh, you're so ravishing, and I am enthralled. Oh, um, like enslave? Enslave, yeah. A thrall is a slave. So to be enthralled doesn't mean to be charmed by someone. It means to be their slave. And you would enthrall your enemies. Um, you would say, you are now my thralls. Um, is that a Tolkien word? Yeah, it totally is. Yeah. I'm just um, wondering how I knew it. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so um, Yoda, Tolkien, good. Um, so, yeah, so unless you enthrall me, I never shall be free. So what's the oxymoron there? Slave is free. Yeah. Mm. If you don't enslave me, I'll never be free. I'll never be chased unless you rape me. Yeah, nor ever chased except you ravish me. Um, so, yeah, those are difficult and hard thoughts. Um, the paradox or the oxymorons there, the sharp contradictions, are the point. And the point is the difficulty of letting God into your life comes from the idea that essentially you have to do the exact opposite of everything that it would seem you would want to do in order to, to be free, to be chaste, um, to stand, to rise and to stand, um, to be made whole. All of those things done says you have to do the exact opposite. You have to be battered and beaten down and broken um, into by God. You have to be ravished by God. You have to be enslaved by God all of those things, but in order to achieve freedom and chastity um, and um, happiness and salvation. Um, let's look at one more. Um, is there one that anyone wants to do in particular? Were there any any of them struck you as you were doing the reading? Anything, or you mean the divine? The Holy Sonnets. I was interested. I would have to do it. Number four is the, um, we've read that poem at the rounders. Yeah. Why? Why is that? Why did you separate it? Why does he separate it from? Isn't it? It's much longer than that. Isn't it? No. It stops there? Yeah. That's as good as if that sealed my pardon with thy blood. Yeah, that's what we did the first day. Yeah, I remember Well, why don't we look at, do you have, 
I, w- I was just gonna say, just because I like the way that it sounds, a uh, father part of his double interest unto thy kingdom thy son gives to me. Okay. Um, which in our edition is number 12. Uh, someone want to read it? You don't have your book. Yeah, I forgot one. <laughs> you almost got through class without my noticing. <laughs> <laughs> so close. That's surprising. Almost. <laughs> Maybe you could look on with someone. Yeah. Just a suggestion. Maybe you want to read it. Do you want me to read it to make up for it? Yeah. Where where are we starting? It's on it. It's 16. It's 12 for us. Father, part of his double interest, unto thy kingdom thy son gives to me. His jointure in the naughty trinity, he keeps and gives me his death's conquest. This lamb, whose death with life the world hath blessed, was from the world's beginning slayed, and he hath made two wills, which with the legacy of his in thy kingdom do thy sons and best. Yet such are thy laws that men argue yet whether a man those statues can fulfill, none doth, but they all heal in grace and spirit. Revive again what law and letter kill. Thy laws abridgment and thy last command is all but love, but let that last will stand. Thank you. So I think this is, that's worth uh, comparing to the Herbert poem Redemption, yeah. remember? Having been long attended to a rich lord, not striving, I resolve it to be bold um, and seek a new uh, small rented lease and cancel the old. So here, he's, who's the father? God. God, yeah. Um, part of his double interest unto thy kingdom, thy son gives to me. So he has um, the son, Jesus, has a double interest in God's kingdom. Um, what does interest mean there? Like a claim to? Yes, exactly. Um, it's the same thing that uh, when you talk in legal terms about an interested party, um, it doesn't mean that, oh, yeah, I thought that was a fascinating case. <laughs> um, it means that it affects you. It affects your, um, uh, your, your financial standing, your, um, uh, your prosperity. So um, the son has a double interest in in the father's kingdom. What is the double interest? Why does the son have a double interest? Maybe being immortal and being immortal? Yes, as both God and man. Again, these are all really um, tricky theological problems that Dunn is um, partly not solving, but um, just cramming all together. the question whether the son is um, a human is is God or a man, or whether Jesus is God or a man, or whether he's both, or whether he was God but becomes a man. Um, those are questions that were very hotly argued for centuries. Um, but he certainly does have a double interest. His jointure in the naughty Trinity he keeps. So what's his jointure in the naughty Trinity? What does that mean? The son. The Son in the Trinity itself. Yeah. The doctrine of the Trinity is a naughty one um, because <coughs> um, it's three persons in one God. Um, do you remember? I th- I'm not sure I said this explicitly in this class, but there's what's called the Nicene. The Nicene Creed is essentially. Um, the belief in the Trinity um, and the way that belief is expressed 
and there's something called the Nicene Ring, which is that what you have, I'm wondering if I can draw it, is um, God in the center, and um, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there's a ring like this, which um, goes from the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son. And they all are also connecting to God, which they and which they all are. So on this, on these arrows and these connections is the word is, and in these connections is the word is not. So this is This is the Nicene doctrine of the Trinity. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, but the Holy Spirit is not the Father, the Holy Spirit is not the Son, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father. Um, so three persons, one God. Um, and some people think, yes, the Trinity makes um, what could be more obvious, and other people think, I have no idea what that means. And um, if you have no idea what that means, you may not be saved. Um, so there's a story about um, if this seems odd to you, for how, how many people does this seem like, yeah, sure, this is what I learned? No one? Oh, this is what I yeah, learned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah okay. This is what I learned, but it's still odd. Okay, it can be both. Um, in the 19th century, I think it was William Wool and someone else were walking, and a bishop were walking through London, and a carriage came by with three um, people in it. You know, a cab went by, and there were three men sitting in the cab, and the bishop said to Wool, um, there, I think, is just a perfect depiction of the Holy Trinity, three persons in one cab. Huh. And um, Wool said, no, if you want to convince me of the Trinity, you would have to show me um, three cabs with one person in all of them, <laughs> um, with the same person in all of them. Um, that's what I think the Trinity is. So um, it's, a, it's a difficult, a hard doctrine. But the point is the sun belongs to the naughty Trinity. Naughty there should make you think of wood. Uh, like the dirty projectors, naughty pine. Yeah, it's pretty indie. It's well. Um, so his jointure that is like carpentry. He's joined to the naughty trinity, um, and he keeps that um, jointure. Also means his joint um, ownership of the naughty trinity. So he keeps that and gives me his death's conquest. So he keeps his part in the Trinity, um, his joint ownership, his joint possession of the Trinity, um, but he gives me what he conquered by death, um, which is life. This lamb whose death with life the world hath blessed. That's the point. He he's the lamb 
he was sacrificed and that blessed our world with life and that's what he has given me. Um, we'll pick up from there and um, finish with done on Friday. Um, I will send you the reading from Johnson, but there is a sil- there is now a syllabus. Are the Johnson readings going to be in the Norton? Yes, in the Norton. Okay.